The Gospel of Matthew, starting in chapter 17. So this is the scene of what is uh, typically called the Mount of Transfiguration. And so we see it's six days after uh, we last saw him. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. John and James are brothers. And led them up uh, on the high mountain by themselves. And so why did he only take these three and not all twelve? Well, it was his good pleasure to do so. It's not up to us to to try to understand all his reasons or his judgments, um, but for whatever reason, he felt like bringing this inner core of the three uh, that were closest to him uh, up this mountain. And so he was transfigured before them, which means his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah all of a sudden appeared. And then Peter says, <laughs> Lord, you know, I'm sure I'm sure they're amazed and confused and what's going on. <laughs> so Peter pipes in, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Uh, and I assume James and John are just kind of standing there in awe. <laughs> but Peter's like, we got to do something. <laughs> Let's make some tabernacles. <laughs> And again, this word tabernacles, I think it's like the word tent in, or sukkot. And, uh, you know, in the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or sukkot, um, when you make a small little tent for a person, not the big tabernacle that was the, you know, the house of God before the temple. So why Moses and Elijah? I think they represent... Uh, the law and the prophets. You see, you hear the people talk a lot about, um, you know, Jesus will talk about, um, you know, the law and the, and the prophets both pointed to him. Well, here you have Moses representing the law. God gave Moses the law. And Elijah representing the prophets. In some ways, he's kind of considered uh, the greatest prophet because he actually didn't die on the earth. He went up in the chariot of fire um generally most people today would consider Isaiah the greatest prophet because of all that he wrote down for us all that he foretold um but Elijah had a special special place in their hearts uh in that he uh um you know for for one he he spoke truth to the powers of the day and and to the you know the kings but then also he he stood for righteousness when most of the world around him was not and as we'll see here in a second he was the one foretold to uh come again before the uh, uh before the coming of Jesus the other interesting thing is it, the scripture does say that Moses died, but we never they never found his body. So I don't know what that death looked like. Maybe it was something similar to Elijah, but but that I mean scripture doesn't say that. Then God speaks with a booming voice, and what does he say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The first part of that is exactly what he said at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But then the second part is an addition after he has gone and proven himself in obedience through uh, this work that God has put him to. And so now he adds to it, listen to him. So he's granting him uh, greater authority and position 
for all that he has done for because he has obeyed completely so he hasn't just been um imputed with a, a, a you know a, a seed straight from god the you know, only begotten son but he you know adam was that too but now he has obeyed in a way that adam did not and so now he is given more more power and authority by the father and he says all should listen to him so if you go back and compare the the scenes of his baptism and this is true across the different gospels go back and compare uh, what god says about him at his baptism versus what he says here you'll notice this distinction and then Moses and Elijah disappear, and Jesus tells them, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So now he's quite clearly saying that he's going to rise from the dead. Uh, his disciples ask, Wait a minute, wasn't Elijah supposed to come first? And he answers and says, Yes, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. So he's saying that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. So not that he was Elijah, but he came in that same spirit in order to, you know, Elijah, when he was in the world, he was just speaking. The world was not representing God. And so that he was speaking harshly to people that they need to repent and turn around. And if you think about it, that's exactly what John the Baptist was doing. But he says the people did not recognize him, that he was from God, so they, they ended up killing him, which, you know, how could that even be? But that's what they did. He said, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. He's saying, same thing's going to happen to me. It's interesting, the very first part, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. So he's saying this, this same reality will happen again, except this time all things will be restored in, at this future coming. So then they go down to the crowd and uh, there's a man that's crying for mercy and says, my son's a lunatic, he's very ill, he often falls in the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And Jesus answers, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. I've never been quite sure who Jesus is chastising here. Is he chastising the man? I, what I think it is, is he's chastising the man for um, kind of not totally believing because the disciples could not uh, remove the demon. He, he was kind of doubting whether Jesus really could or not. He obviously had enough belief to bring it, bring his son to Jesus. He was desperate, so that was a, a key. Um, but But maybe not totally believing. And um, that, that's, that's what I think. But uh, I, I've also thought before that, you know, maybe he's chastising his disciples for not having enough faith. Anyways, Jesus rebuked him. The demon leaves. The boy's cured. And the disciples ask, why could we not drive him out? And he says, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. That last line was added years later, apparently. So Jesus is saying that they had not grown up in their faith yet to command authority. That, that for whatever reason, this demon had a, a higher level of authority. Uh, 
they had not grown in their faith enough to cast the thing out. And, um, and so, you know, he's basically encouraging them to, to continue growing, to continue believing, to continue entering the reality of the eternal kingdom, uh, rather than seeing the difficulties of this world and believing they are all powerful you know, having their being in the eternal kingdom, um, which again requires dying to ourselves, taking on the mantle of the Lord, taking on the reality of his life so that more of this faith is available. And Jesus really has this on his mind now, or he's, or he really feels like it's, it needs to be understood by the disciples. Um, Maybe because this point has illustrated how much they're still in need of him being present. And he's understanding he will not be present with them for too much longer. And so he says, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they're starting to get it. They're deeply grieved that he would say this. And so then the tax man's coming up to Peter. And I don't know if he's just wanting his taxes or if... uh, they're again trying to trap him because they often the problem the taxes um, you know were a very hot political topic at the time. I think this one might be for the temple, so it might not be as uh, as politically charged as the ones that go directly to Rome. But the people were feeling overtaxed, and they have multiple layers of leaders with different goals above them, and so people would conspire to make someone pinpoint who they were subservient to. Anyways, this uh, guy comes up to Peter and says, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And so first thing he does, he comes into Jesus. And uh, before Peter can even ask him a question, Jesus knows what's going on. And he says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? So Peter's probably taken off guard here. He's, well, that's what I was just thinking about. <laughs> he says, well, they, they take it from strangers. They're, they're not taking a tax from their sons. They're taking it from strangers. Jesus says to them, then the sons are exempt. So remember, he's talking about the religious authorities, the, the, the religion that's supposed to be representing God, because God did establish the temple, right? And this is supposed to be a temple tax. And so the, these people are, are um, supposed to be taking tax for the purposes of God. And yet, here are sons of God. Uh, at least that's, that's what these disciples are called to, and that's what Jesus is already. And so why is the tax, Jesus is saying that the, the tax, that's not the way you people do it in other things. You don't tax the sons. And here we are, sons, and, and you're taxing us. So he's saying, you know, this is not typically the way of things. However, he says the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them. Go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. So this is just a powerful reality. He says, look, God is not looking for any tax from us because we've given him our lives. We've given everything to him. Our entire life is our tax to him. 
he says, however, they have their way of seeing the world and we didn't come here to offend them. And the Lord owns everything and we are his and he will take care of our needs. So go out, catch a fish and the money that they need will be in the fish's mouth. And in this way, the Lord will provide everything so that they are satisfied and we are well taken care of because we are his. And then we're on to chapter 18. And Jesus begins to teach about the kingdom and about how, how we're to enter it. And he uses a little child as a prop. He, he, calls, uh, he asks his disciples who's the greatest in the kingdom. And then he calls a child over. And he says, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy milestone, millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Children are um, they're sponges. They're hungry to learn and they're completely accepting of new things from their parents that are just things they don't know. Adults are skeptical. Um, Adults have their own framework of seeing the world, and they're skeptical of anything that doesn't squarely fit in that framework. And so what Jesus is saying is, in order to receive the truth of the kingdom, which is very different than your fallen wisdom, you have to lay that fallen wisdom down and be as simple as a child and accept the reality of the kingdom if you want it to to come into you, to fill you, to give you the wisdom of God. And he says, that's how you enter. And so whoever humbles himself the most as this child, he can become greatest in the kingdom. And who humbled himself more than Jesus, who although he deserved everything, allowed himself to be pinned on a cross for us. And he also says there's a transference of grace and blessing. He says, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned. So he's saying that... that, it's not that God wants to curse anyone, but he's saying that there is, there, there is a way, there's a grace, the way of God uh, being administered in the world, and it flows with those, with his kingdom, and with those who possess his kingdom. And he says this flowing of blessing comes into one who receives such a one as this, who has already become this gateway to the kingdom. And, and the opposite is also true. Because God's way is advancing. He will have his way. He will have his purposes for mankind. And he will not allow anyone to stand in the way. So then he goes right into stumbling blocks. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the internal fire. 
If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast in the fiery hell. I figure like I feel like we just talked about this, and this is the first gospel, so I'm, I think I just referenced it when we were reading something else. Um, so he this isn't uh, literal. I mean, it, it can be, but you had a bunch of monks, uh, I don't remember, 500,000 years ago, going around plucking their eyes out because they were lusting after women. And, um, and, and so on one hand, it, it's noble. They were saying, look, I love God more than I love anything in this world, and so, but I cannot stop lusting, and so I'm going to pluck my eyes out, as Jesus said. And so uh, there, there's something to be admired about that, but it's kind of missing the heart of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, seek the Lord, beg the Lord to heal you, to break you off. And absolutely take measures that whatever is hurting you, that it can, um, that those things will not be stumbling blocks unto you. Um, I, I don't, I, I'm not 100% against it, I, um, but I, I think it's kind of missing the point to actually pluck your eyes out or, or cut your hands. If you, if you think about the, um, and I know no one's sitting around listening to this thinking about doing these things, but I'm, I'm just trying to expound on it a little bit. Um, if you think about when uh, Jesus was talking about washing his hands, we talked about that the other day. Um, he's saying it's what comes out of you that makes you unclean, not what comes in you. Well, it's the same thing here. Um, it, it's it's a situation of the heart, the 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 fault, the either worldliness, the carnality, or the demonic influence in your life. And so, seek the Lord that these things are removed, so that you can be clean and receive the fullness of the kingdom, rather than. Trying to deal with external things. In 10, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I can read this two different ways. One in which she's saying, Don't despise anyone uh, because they have angels assigned to them. God, God wishes for everyone to be close to him. And so even if there's nothing impressive about the one you see, or it's a child, you know, he's, he had grabbed hold of a child, right? And you said, you're despising a child. Um, maybe he hasn't grown to accomplish much yet because he's still a child, but he has an angel with him who sees the face of God. And so who are you to despise him when you look at it that way? And he says, for the son of man has come to save that which was lost. And he continues on because he wants them to understand that God wants to save everyone. His purpose was for all of mankind, not just for some. That does not mean he will allow people that continue to go their own ways to come in, but it does mean he wants everyone to come in. He says, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine, which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but he will go to great lengths to bring one to him. 
that does not have him. And there will be great rejoicing over that one. And then Jesus talks about how to deal with uh, sin and fault within the body. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So he says, don't make a big spectacle out of it right away. Go to the person, not not social media, not gossiping, nothing like that. Go directly to the person and discuss it with them and say, I see this problem. I think we, I think, you know, you're off course with the Lord. And, um, and hopefully that person is correct. Now they might think they're correct and you're not. In which case you grab a couple more brothers and go and speak to him. And if, if you've kind of got, um, you know, the people that you grab are in agreement, yes, he is off track, and then that will hopefully get his attention, and he will come to um, submit himself to the Lord and to your admonishment. If, on the other hand, he still says no, he's going his own way, then you bring it to the entire body, your entire fellowship, and say that you know, this is the situation. And hopefully that will then humble the person and he will repent and and turn back away. But if that person refuses to do so, and the, 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 so the, the fellowship is all under the understanding that he's, you know, we're, this is hypothetical, so it's difficult, but there's, there's clearly sin at work in the person. They refuse to deal with it. You, you know that the Lord is wanting them to deal with this at this time, and they're just refusing, they're in complete rebellion, then they need to be cut off from the body. That's a hard word for, for today's uh, modern Christian, um, but that's how mixture gets in the church, is um, we basically say, oh yeah, I think that's sin, but it's not a big deal. And um, so look to what the Spirit of the Lord is doing, and... And if the one, I've talked about this recently and multiple times, but when this, the spirit of the Lord can be contained by us willingly bringing in people who have nothing to do with the spirit of the Lord that aren't willing, they would say they're willing to follow the spirit of the Lord, but in reality, they want to go their own ways. And that, um, that stops up, bottles up the spirit of the Lord moving in everyone else. And Jesus is saying, my, my church, my called out ones are too precious to me. If you have one that's in complete rebellion, cut them off so that I can move freely in those that really want me. He's saying, look, I've, if, if you've been raised up in me, then truly whatever you bound shall have been bound. And whatever you loose shall have been loose. I'm giving you power and authority on the earth. And so you need to take that seriously. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. He's saying all the power and authority that I have, when a couple of you get together, I'm there with you. And so I bring that power and authority to bear with those who have given themselves to me and are moving in my name and in my Father's name. 
Then in 21, Peter's wondering about forgiveness. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? He said, you know, this is kind of confusing what you're saying here. How, how, what's the end of this forgiveness? And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So again, he's not saying specifically 490 times. He's saying, forgive and forgive and forgive uh, as many times as it takes. For this, and, and so again, what, so that seems to go against what he just says, kicking the guy out, right? What well, has to do with what's, what's, what's the heart of the person? What's the spirit saying? If the heart of the person is rebellion, well, he, he can't continue, he can't add that mixture to the body. He can't be someone that is a stumbling block to everybody else. But if the heart of the person is to um, fully submit to God, but they're in battle, they're struggling, well then give the forgiveness of the Lord is ample for that person. And then Jesus gives the example of the, the parable of the talents. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. I'm not gonna, it's long, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you know the story. He gives one ten talents, he gives another one five talents. Whoops, excuse me, that's when I wish I had a rewind button. I started reading it, and uh, that's not, this is a different one. He, uh, so the king has begun to settle accounts with his slaves. So that's significant. That's, that's, there's good judgment going on here, right? He's settling accounts with all the slaves. And one owes in 10,000 talents. Uh, but since he did not have the means to repay him, he, he starts begging him. He's got his wife and kids there. And uh, he falls to the ground, prostrates himself. He says, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But then the slave goes out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So this slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience for I will repay you. So he's now said the exact same thing that the, the first guy had said. But even though this slave was uh, had just been forgiven a great debt, he was unwilling to forgive this one who owed him. He did not give the same mercy that the the king had showed him. And so his fellow slaves saw what happened because he, he had him thrown in jail. And he went and told the king what had happened. And then so the Lord summons him. And says, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you plead with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on him? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you, Jesus says, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So he's saying, I am trying to teach my way on the earth. So... For you to receive forgiveness for me and then turn around and not have that same heart, it shows you, you stopped at the forgiveness, you stopped at the salvation, and you didn't grow in me. You're supposed to take on my heart. You're supposed to take on my wisdom. You're supposed to grow in my way so that you can represent me to the world, not just for your own salvation. And so this is Jesus' answer when Peter was asking, how much should we forgive another? He said, you've been forgiven everything. If, if, if you think somebody else's difficulty or somebody else's sin is worse 
than what you've been forgiven, then you have a selfish perspective. You don't have the perspective of God. Because from God's perspective, all of mankind has fallen so far short of his glory that everyone needs a savior to be to be slaughtered on the way to and on the cross. A perfect savior to be slaughtered for you, for your sins. But you think yourself, your sins not so bad as compared to others? That's not the understanding of God. And so he says, realize fully how much God has loved you so that you can take in this love and have this love for others. Uh, Again, as it says elsewhere, don't pervert that and say that means their sin is good and okay. No one said that. That's a perverse modern understanding that has no place in the Lord. He says, no, everyone must turn around, repent, and come into my life and my way. But I have tremendous sympathy for your struggles, and I want to make a way for you to come out of them and into this new life. And then we're on to chapter 19. So Jesus leaves Galilee and he moves into Judea and there's crowds following him. He's healing them. And some Pharisees come to Jesus and they're, they're trying to, you know, test him and catch him and something. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And so he responds, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So this is the this is the explanation of marriage according to Jesus. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So he's saying, the, the, a spiritual reality has happened here. The, the man was a separate person and the woman was a separate person. And they have just joined into one new person, create a spiritual person created by God. And so this new person created by God is a spiritual reality. Every bit is real, more real, because it's eternal. So it's actually more real than um, than the, your life on this earth. And it's created by God. And so let nobody separate it. I, and I'm not trying to say that a married couple will stay together as uh, an eternal being, with just one being... Um, one singular being for eternity. I I think it came out that way, but I didn't mean that. But what I do mean is there's a spiritual reality of one entity, one spiritual entity that God has joined together. And so, you know, who are you? Like if, if something is happening in your marriage to, and, and I, and let me soften this, marriage is difficult. And so, I don't know how any anyone can do marriage if the two people are not um, completely submitted to Christ. I, I, it's completely understandable how they all fall apart when the two people aren't submitted to Christ. If, if you don't love God more than you love your spouse, then 
it would be very difficult to hold together a marriage because once marriage enters into, um, you know, once, once you're living in a marriage, like the old days of being single and having lots of options and what those are gone. You have new realities to deal with. And if you're not submitted to God, then you end up having all kinds of problems with each other. It's, it's just normal. It's, 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 that's ask any married person. <laughs> this is life. But if you humble yourself and submit yourself to God, then whatever thing, whatever strife, whatever difficulty you think you have with your spouse becomes far less important. And you work out these things and you humble yourself to God and to each other and God works these things out. And so, but if you hold up your own perceived importance or desires, which is bound to happen if you're not submitted to God, that's what's going to happen. If you're not submitted to God, that means you're worshiping yourself. I mean, you're worshiping the enemy, but no one goes, I mean, very few people go around, you know, saying, I worship Satan. They just do it because they don't know it. So what form does that take? Well, generally it takes worshiping themselves, which Satan's totally fine with you doing that. And so when we worship ourselves, um, well, it's hard for somebody else to like, <laughs> you know, get in there, right? Because we're the one on the thr- on our own throne, and so um, it just it ends up causing tremendous clashes, and that's why you see so much divorce today. But the Pharisees said, "Then why did Moses give a certificate of divorce in the law?" And he, so Jesus says, "Because of your hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives." But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And so, he's saying, look, this this is an incredible sin. If you refuse to submit your life to God, well, yeah, God gives free will and he'll permit divorce. But you certainly shouldn't be looking to get married again. You should... Basically, you know, just give your life to the Lord at that point. And so, again, it speaks to if we can't submit our life to God, then there will be trouble all around. Don't bring another person into that trouble. If if you couldn't submit your life to God the first time, you think some other relationship's going to work out? Well, the problem is in you. You're thinking the problem is in your spouse, but the problem is in you. Humble yourself, repent, look for reconciliation, and work through it. If you're you're in that spot, I don't know if anyone will listen to this that's in that spot, but if you're in that spot, it's going to be a long road back. It took you a long time to get there. It's going to be a long road back. Continue to humble yourself. Continue to pray. Continue to seek the Lord. And let His grace flow in and slowly rebuild what's been damaged over a long period of time. God loves you. He united you as a married couple, as a married entity, and he will repair. If you seek with a whole heart, with prayer, and continually, over, with humility, it, again, it, it takes a long time for something like that to blow up, so it takes a long time to heal it as well. But that that is the way that Jesus uh, offers us. He offers us new life in all areas of life.
So then the disciples think, man, this is a really hard word. He says, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. And Jesus says, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. He says, it's actually, well, Paul says, it's actually better to stay single because then your, your, uh, your devotions are not split between God and another person. Um, Jesus is kind of pointed to that without saying exactly the same thing. He says, you know, a lot of people can't go this way. They're, they're filled up with too much uh, passion and lust uh, for another to be, you know, to, to go this way. So he says, for there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. He says, some people are, are made eunuchs from birth, some people have a king that chops them off and they're a eunuch whether they like it or not. But some give themselves to be eunuchs. That doesn't mean they're literally chopping anything off. It just means they decide, I'm going to devote myself so much to the Lord, to the kingdom, that I will have the fullness of that kingdom reality. Because I'm not trying to constantly please my wife or my husband. I'm living for the Lord. And therefore... I have far more time. When you have a when you have a spouse, when you have kids, the more of these things you have, the more your time gets divided. And so it certainly crowds out the world, but if you in the same way devote yourself just to God, you're going to have far more time. And so he's saying for he who is able to accept this, let him accept it, receive the fullness of the kingdom. The disciples tried to, starting in 13, rebuke children for coming to Jesus. He said, let them alone. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So again, he's pointing the picture, and he lays hands on them and prays for them, and they depart. And then we have the story of the rich young ruler, who comes to him and says, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? He says, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. So this is... Uh, this, this is an important thing Jesus is saying. Obviously, everyone thinks of Jesus as good, right? But he's saying, I don't even consider myself good. Only the Father in heaven is good. I just submit my life to him. He says, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, yeah, I, I do. He says, which ones are you talking about? He says, don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus says, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So you can see in the man's heart that he's he's a good-hearted person who... Um, is willing to live for others, but he's still dependent on these worldly things. He's dependent on the fact that he's rich and he has all these capabilities. That that becomes a big part of who he is. And so he says, for you to be free of these worldly things, you need to give them up so that you place the value of who you are on your treasure in heaven. And follow me freely that way. You're not be constrained by the world then. But this is a hard word for the young man. So he goes away grieving because he's got a lot of property.
So Jesus tells his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And again, I say it often, but in our world today, we are all rich. We have far more, because the, the point here is not that there's something, uh, you know, money bad, uh, poorness good. The point is that richness provides distraction. It provides comfort of the world uh, as opposed to comfort from the Lord. It provides a, a way towards a way of life versus depending on the Lord for all things, seeking the Lord for our entertainment, seeking the Lord for everything. It, it, it provides all this stuff. Well, if we do you think any of these do you think this rich young ruler had a cell phone that had all the wonders of the internet all in his pocket do you think he had that no we are far richer today than anyone at that time and so can we enter the kingdom well it says it's pretty difficult <laughs> and so what do we have to do we have to discipline ourselves away from these things Discipline ourselves away from, I always mention television and internet because I think those are the two most common ways people distract themselves. But you might do neither of those things and you might distract yourself from something completely differently. Whatever those things are, um, are we allowing the kingdom to come in to take over like uh, leaven and dough and make us fully the kingdoms? Or are we allowing the leaven that comes into us to be the stuff of the world. It doesn't have to be necessarily obviously evil. Uh, I know my personal distractions aren't evil, but I still take in too much of them. And when I could be receiving from the Lord. And look, the Lord wants us to enjoy life and, and have, you know, to, to be able to have freedom to enjoy things. But what is our heart? Is our heart to receive him? Because the, the more we give ourselves to him, the more we're going to receive of him. And as soon as we do, we realize there is no better satisfaction and joy and peace than receiving from him. And he's always available. Are we always available to him? And so when Jesus explains this to the disciples, the disciples are blown away by this. How can this be true? Because in their culture, they basically look at... Um, uh, worldly prosperity as proof of divine favor, because the law kind of, you know, the law strongly points to that, and and there's principles there that are that are true, but Jesus is kind of upending that and saying, yeah, but you don't truly understand the principles. The Lord's blessing and favor comes from living a life unto Him, and so they're saying, well, who can be saved then? And Jesus says, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So he's saying, you can't make yourself blessed or saved or mature. But you can seek him and he will do all these things. And then Peter pipes up, hey, we've left everything for you. <laughs> what then will there be for us? And Jesus says, truly I said to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or children, or farms for my sake, 
will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So he's saying, you you that have followed me to this point, you are going to be set up on thrones with kingdom, authority, and power to judge and to administer my grace in the world. He's saying, and you're going to even judge those those people who lived long before you, who you revere because they have a special place in the scriptures and in history. He says, but everyone who leaves the things, the cares of this world, whether they're relationships, whether they're, um, you know, thing, a farm with, with, you know, any kind of worldly wealth, any kind of turning away from the world and turning towards me will receive many times what they left. I will bless them far more than anything. It's not easy to leave these things because, man, our our life is based on them, you know? And the longer our life has been based on them, the more difficult they are to leave. And so they're precious to us. Um, But he says, I will bless you far more if you simply trust me, walk out in faith, and follow me. Uh, against those things but he says many who are first will be last and the last first he says i judge things completely opposite to the ways of the world this is also a word for our time that we the blessing that is available to us is greater than that which was available to these even these early ones the lord's plan is to move far more powerfully in these last days scripture says it over and over again than even what was in the time of jesus we cannot do it without Jesus. He is the one who made the way for us, and he is the way. He is the life. He is the light of the world. So that had to happen first because none of us are capable of doing this without him. But his plan, his Jesus' whole purpose in life is to fill up many sons and to have many who are, who are just like him in the world because he is in us. And we are raised up as sons, as brothers to him, co-heirs with Christ, that he could be in a many-membered body throughout the world, bringing the grace of the Lord. That is God's purpose for us. But we must turn away from the world. We must be available to him for us. We must seek him violently, as we discussed the other day, so that no matter what is in our way, we give everything to him. We receive everything who he is so that he can fill us. It takes our permission. He won't do it without our permission. We have to be willing to say, Lord, take away everything of this world. I want to be only yours. And then he will, and it will be blessing beyond anything we can imagine. And that's it for today. God bless you.